DZ Public Library podcast is made possible in part by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and is a production of the labs at DZ Public Library. You're listening to the DC Public Library podcast recorded from the Labs Recording Studio in the historic, modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, DC. This is DC Public Library presents Ani Buju Gakina Awiya, Waganaka Singodawa Koetinda, Mishikent Ndodam, Ali Genia Indishnikas. Hello, I'm your host, Ali. To get us started, good morning. Joining me today is Renee Goki from the National Museum of the American Indian. Uh, Renee, would you be willing to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, good morning. Um, my name is Renee Goki. I am a citizen of the Eastern Shawnee tribe, which really just means that um, our tribe in Oklahoma is the furthest east of the three Shawnee tribes in Oklahoma today and on my paternal side. And on my mother's side, I'm Ukrainian and English heritage. Uh, so my grandmother's first generation um, born here in the United States. And um, and I kind of bring those heritages and backgrounds to, to life at home in Virginia, where I have two children, and my work at the National Museum of the American Indian. That's awesome. A little bit more about me as well. Um, actually, a very similar background. Um, I'm an enrolled member of the Little Traverse Bay Band of Odawa Indians on my dad's side. And then on my mom's side, um, very, very Irish, English kind of blend. So I totally get that. Oh, um, that's great. Yeah, it's, you know, and it's really great because like you get this, you get a, a really cool perspective into sort of like these different cultures and like how, how these things connect, right? Um, yeah. This is this uh, idea for the episode was inspired because of like growing up on the powwow trail. My dad was part of a drum, and my sister and I danced a lot. Um, <laughs> so you know, and there's there's food that you run into out there, right? So um, recently, it feels like there has been a lot of conversation around food sovereignty, but not everybody knows what that might mean. So when we say food sovereignty, what are we talking about? So food sovereignty is the ability to sort of grow and access, preserve, and I think create pathways for our traditional foods for future generations. And this revolves really around, I think, thoughtful choices that are in accordance with our cultures and histories when we're talking about food. So just the ability to have access to these foods, to learn about them, and to make them a foundation of our, um, of our lives. Nice. So, you know, how do you think this meaning might change to in Indigenous and uh, non-Native communities? Well, um, you know, everybody comes from these long food traditions, and... You know, I think until the Industrial Revolution, you know, whole cultures were built around food growing. And in uh, different and diverse Native American tribes, both in the United States and, and beyond, and um, Canada and um, down in Central and South America, I think, generally speaking, our whole value systems have revolved around the, you know, the foods that we eat and grow. Um, in, in Chani culture, we're matrilineal, 
um, and have had advanced agricultural systems built kind of on mound agriculture. And what some might say is the three sisters, um, corn is very important, um, beans still and, and pumpkins, or we call them wapiko, and we still have dances for these things. So they're still really important um, ways that we honor these foods. But I think one of the big differences, um, generally speaking, for indigenous versus non-native communities is that um, in our history as indigenous people, there were uh, particular ways that that native people were either forced forcibly removed from their traditional homelands, um, such as the Shawnee and, and many others. You know, um, people often know of the quote five civilized tribes being forcibly removed. That would be the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, um, Creek, and Seminole. Um, but there were actually thirty three, and so you can imagine the kind of impact that that has on food systems and ways of life to be forced out to um, Oklahoma. And there, you know, if you look at the story of westward expansion and um, this idea of manifest destiny, there were other uh, actually systematic and devastating effects on food systems uh, across uh, these lands to try and sort of dismantle not only traditional hunting and food systems, but this, this parlays into um, traditional uh, family relationships and lives and, and, much, and health and wellness and much more. Um, and then, you know, furthermore, um, and you may probably have a story like this in your own family, um, so many of us do, but in the boarding school system, you know, and that also affected the types of foods um, that we we grew, it affected family relationships. And um, in my own family, I always think back to, you know, my grandmother would have a big pot of beans going uh, at home. And that was often something we we ate and she'd have stews and stuff, but beans was really one of her favorites. And I, so I, I later connected the, the fact that that was one of the few foods that she got to eat when she was at, um, growing up at Seneca Indian boarding school. Um, there, there wasn't much food to go around and especially after, you know, kind of at the end of the depression and, um, in Oklahoma at that time and people didn't have a lot of money and then boarding schools, especially there just was not, um, from her recollection, much food at all. And beans was one of the few foods that they, they got. And funny enough, that's one of her, you know, that was one of her comfort foods. So we, we have some actually simple, but I think important family traditions, even I remember just having a pot of beans, you know, before the pot of beans went on and, you know, kind of after you finish breakfast, you start on, in on what's going to, what are we going to have for lunch? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so those beans would be out and, you know, the family, very close knit family, especially on that side of my family. And so people would sit around and we'd, we'd talk and we'd sort the beans you know, and it was just, it's just a little act, but it was an imp- just important family gathering um, tradition. And we have, you know, there's a lot of those in our, in our families still, um, but that was disrupted with boarding schools. And so I think going back to some of those um, is really important. Oh man, it's, it's so funny hearing about this because there is a lot of that in my family too. Like, I think I think the way that it sort of manifests for us is um, uh, issues of scarcity, right? 
And so um, actually with, with the holiday coming up, I can say, you know, with um, Thanksgiving, uh, back home in Michigan, you know, in, in less, you know, plague-filled times, I guess, um, we would be talking about like a weekend-long affair where we would bounce from house to house to house, basically all around the lower half of Michigan, you know, because that kind of thing wasn't always available, like to, to my dad, to my grandma, you know, it was being able to host something like that, being able to sort of take your turn is a really big part of it. And like, there's, you know, and there, there are like influences, right. In, in our family as well. And so, wow, it is, it's really great to hear that because like, it is sort of like a commonality, right. But yeah, so this actually brings me next then into fry bread, which I know is like a lot of people, if they know what it is, I should say, um, if they know what it is, they tend to associate it with indigenous communities. But I also know um, there have been like certain uh, food sovereignty groups or like uh, indigenous chefs who have sort of moved away from fry bread as a concept. So you know, thinking about this in terms of food sovereignty and everything, what are your thoughts on fry bread? Well, you know, fry bread is a comfort food (laughs) for me. um, I did grow up having fry bread. I grew up in Oregon, actually. And so funny enough, uh, quite a few of our Shawnee families um, from my tribe moved out to Oregon and Washington and California and actually to pick fruits and work in the gathering hops and some in the um, timber industry and things like that for jobs. And so um, it's kind of funny that, you know, the food, some of the food industries are, are where the jobs were. And, and that's how my family got out there. And so funny enough, we grew up, you know, my dad um, hunts and um, we gather mushrooms sometimes as a family. And I grew up kind of crabbing and clamming and <laughs> with those kind of foods. And so we would have, um, and lots of berries. And so fry bread is a great comfort food for me because when our family get together, um, we always have fry bread and my grandma, of course, makes the best fry bread, right? Everybody's grandma does. (laughs) And, um, you know, we'd have it with deer stew or other uh, things or a pot of beans and, and, um, or even with jam. So if if we'd have, um, blackberry jam, that's how we kind of have it in the Northwest coast. So on the one hand, it's a very, um, comforting food and it makes, me think of my family. And, you know, I believe it came about, you know, a lot of people credit the Navajo or Diné with it um, after the long walk and a lot of those food systems such as um, such as uh, mutton and different foods were um, cut off from the Navajo people. Um, people started to take those uh, government rations, flour and uh, lard and these kind of things and make fry bread. And so in some ways it's an act of resilience. You know, it was back then. Now today, I think it, it may be an act of resilience to move, um, you know, maybe to have fry bread here and there, but to really move beyond fry bread and go back to the foods that um, are healthiest for us. Um, and so I think that, you know, uh, fry bread is a part of a lot of our history um, but I also think that if we reach, reach back even further and find those ties to the traditional foods that our people ate, they can also give us a lot of strength and they're better for our bodies and, and hearts and minds. So, you know, I think, I think each has its place and, um, but I, I applaud the efforts to 
learn more about our traditional foods and try and get back to growing those and all of the great work that's happening across the across the country and across these lands to do that work. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I love that answer. Um, and that's, that's been, oh my gosh, that's sort of where I've landed on this issue too. Like not by any means, it's like an expert, but just as somebody who has also grown up, you know, loving fry bread in all of its different forms. Um, and you know, it's one of those things that I think can be celebrated, right? Like we can, we can talk about this as like a resiliency food. You know, when my husband and I got married about a year ago, we actually had it at my wedding um, with Aww. strawberry shortcake stuff. Yeah, it was. Oh, great. that's great. Yeah, that's you know, sorry. I um, <laughs> and uh, as as just a further uh, telling on my family a little bit, um, one of one of my uh, grandmas was like stuffing a bunch in her purse too for later. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. She wanted to take some home. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, that was, sorry. it, it oh. was wonderful. That's but, a great uh, story. And those are the stories, like those are the family stories that, I mean, I just think back and food stories, I think are some of those um, most profound memories in our lives. You know, I have just some great, silly, fun stories of, you know, kind of getting into trouble with cousins, you know, and family gatherings, like we snuck pie and it was really fun to, you know, and our grandma probably didn't mind if we ate more, but it was kind of a little bit of fun to, you know, um, just sneak around with cousins, get into a little trouble. And um, it was just some great memories there. And um, Mm -hmm. so I think, I think you're right. That's, that's a great story about your wedding. Yeah, it's, you know, it's just funny how, like, uh, it kind of connects to everything, right? Like, it's a it's a thread running through everything. Yeah. Mm. You know, in that, that book, um, Fry Bread, that children's book, yeah. um, you know, he talks, the author talks about how fry bread is time. And you could think about that with any food, but it, it brings us together. So it's the time it's, that's kind of the most important thing is it's that time together, you know, and those memories that, that really, um, hold a lot of importance in anyone's life. You know, food is a great connector. Oh yeah. Oh man. Ugh. I love this. Ugh. It's my favorite. <laughs> um, but this does, so this is a, the other, this is sort of like the flip side of this, of this question for me, because I know, for for a lot of like sort of the indigenous food ways that are being introduced you know we're for me at least like we would be talking about like fish and wild rice lots of those berries you know a lot of this very beautiful stuff that you would find sort of uh growing in michigan or around here a little bit too but um part of part of the issue seems to be and I mean, from personal experience is in a way access to these different ingredients something that i have seen is um there have been folks talking about how difficult it is to like access like that whole food, you know, the nothing that's been processed very much. Um, But even beyond that, sometimes it's just really hard to find like those sorts of ingredients. So when, when we're discussing like food sovereignty and like fry bread and, you know, getting, getting back to those roots and really nourishing our bodies in that way, um, how does, how do you think that this ties into other issues in Indian country? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, I think that 
you know, just to be pretty frank, I think that this is a little bit about, um, about privilege too. Like it's a privilege, you know, now these foods are quite expensive unless you can, you know, go out and gather some of them yourself, um, which is, you know, an awful lot of time. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic thing to do, but, um, it's just ironic that the people who grow, who harvest, who work in our food, you know, create, um, producing most of the world's food, um, I think are really not paid well enough. And so there's this imbalance in terms of access to food and the people who grow our foods. Um, and so, you know, the, the systems that have been in place are um, pretty inequitable. And I think that, um, you know, we need to kind of value the work that it takes to get these foods and the knowledge that's present and, and kind of rekindle some of that knowledge. Because mm-hmm. um, what I've learned is that it's not just about growing the food, which is also rekindling but then learning, you know, how do you process it properly and store it and make sure it's dry in your environment and all of these things. So, you know, it really, food really ties into so many other issues in um, not only I think, you know, in, in quote unquote Indian country, but, uh, you know, on all levels of society, you know, in terms of equity and access to healthy foods and not maybe having the income to, to access some of these foods or food deserts, you know. And so these are, you know, systematic things that I think we need to kind of look at and, and understand more. But the good thing is that, you know, I think it ties back to education. So if we can start to, um, you know, people have food traditions. And so if we can start to kind of, you know, understand them more and ask questions of our family and go back to some of our foods. Um, I think that that would, that would be a, at least a place to start, but you know, it affects healthcare, the types of foods that we eat. And so, you know, things like diabetes, even kind of mental health. And, you know, we know that it's, it's healthy to spend time outside and to be growing things when we can. And, you know, and, and all of those things are all connected so I think that we know probably some of the right ways to go, but it's just connecting, you know, these seeds and these foods and, and access and um, education and I guess prioritizing some of this. Mm-hmm. Does that answer the question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> this is, yeah, I mean, because it's important. Like that's, you know, it's nice to hear this too, because that's that's my own feeling on it is that there, there are so many issues of access, which have so many ties into other things too, like, you know, um, opportunities, socioeconomic status, there's so much that goes into it. And, um, you know, but we, we see examples of this in DC's communities too. Like this is right here in our neighborhoods. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's tough because all of these things are so interconnected that it's, it's tough to find a place to start. Right. That's that's been my experience anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Where do you think is a good place to start? So I think this this is kind of my answer for everything. Um, but I think the biggest thing is always to to learn more, to learn as much as you can. So, you know, 
This is one of those things um, that started for me when I was actually diagnosed with type 2 diabetes uh, about five years ago. And a lot of the a lot of that journey has been, you know, sort of being very mindful of my body and figuring out which foods are better for it, which foods are not, you know, and as much as I love fry bread, it's not that good for me. <laughs> so, you know, one of the ways that I'm able to be as healthy as possible, like in, in my own life is to like learn more, you know, there, there are ways to like, you know, figure out how to prepare foods or figure out like which things, you know, don't spike my blood sugar. And, um, funnily enough, uh, like plain white rice, plain brown rice, those are not good choices for me personally, but wild rice is actually really great. And it's, you know, it's wild to see that sort of thing in action but I feel like, and this is just my own like feeling, if that makes sense. Um, I feel that not everybody has that same sort of awareness, which is totally understandable. You know, not, not everyone has like the time or the ability to, to spend, to learn more about like food, just in general, like what, what's actually good. And, you know, especially with a pandemic on right now, it's even more difficult. You know, um, one of the things that I've done for, you know, uh, Native American Heritage Month, even though it's a little bit cheesy, um, I've put together a reading list of books, um, like for adults and for kiddos about food that are written by indigenous authors. So, you know, naturally I have the Sioux Chef's Cookbook on there. Um, I have uh, To Wow by um, Shane Chartrand. That's cool. I didn't know about that one. Yeah, that that's a new one to me too. I didn't um I was like looking around our collections basically. Um and I found this Tawal is a word in Cree, which means I guess welcome, there is room. And uh Chartrand writes about like his his community up in Canada. And um, you know, there's there's a lot of this really beautiful photography in there, like really, really lovely and loving shots, if that makes sense. Like these, these like odes to food and to his community. And it's funny because where uh, Sean Sherman does not include a recipe for fry bread, uh, Chartrand does. And there's, there's fry bread and there's, um, although I believe he calls it bannock. And um, there is a recipe for his grandfather's galette as well, which is, it's just really funny because it's such a big, it's a difference, right? The book list you put together doesn't sound corny at all to me. I think that's a great idea. And people are always asking, Mm. what are books I can read? Or, you know, I work with teachers and students in the classroom, mainly teachers now is my primary audience. So they're all, you know, books are great. You know, stories are a great way to um, introduce diversity of native people and experiences in really accessible ways. And there's such beautiful books, you know, by native authors and illustrations too. Um, So I think that's such a great place to start. Oh man. So, and it's, it's really wonderful too, that you brought up the book Fry Bread because that's actually DC family reads right now. So, you know, that's the book that we're sort of promoting as a system. Um, I, oh my gosh, my love affair with this book is so extreme. Like I, I love this book. I love the prose. I love the illustrations. Um, 
you know, it's one of those things where like we, we talked about it, this, we talked about this a little bit beforehand in terms of like, you know, talking about that time and the, the time that they take to, to talk about the origins of fry bread. Um, one of the other really exciting things for me is like, you know, showing off that there are a bunch of different ways to be indigenous too, right? Like there's all these different folks who are all a part of the same family. Um, golly. And it, like, they even talk about different fry bread preparation methods too. I, I loved it. Um, and I'm so excited that the system chose it. Yeah. Um, oh, that's great. Actually, I, um, I'm really glad to hear that that book is a DC family reads <laughs> and, um, uh, we have a teacher in residence. Actually, I kind of looked it up yesterday. We have a, uh, we had a teacher in residence this summer, a local teacher actually, um, April Riser, and she worked on taking. We've developed a criteria rubric for how to um, assess uh, Native American children's literature and how to kind of the, what are the questions you know you might want to ask yourself when looking at books about Native people. Are they by Native authors and things like that. And what she did is she took that criteria rubric that the museum's had in place for a few years now and expanded on it using the book Fry Bread as a catalyst for teaching about culture. And so it really does, it touches on, as you said, I think the really important point is there's not one Indigenous experience, you know, and so everybody ha comes from, you know, different families and different tribes and different experiences even within that mm -hmm. um but food is something we all can share about you know and I love the opportunity so many people especially this month during Native American Heritage Month are looking for you know what you know are there craft activities and books I can read and things like that mm -hmm. which which is all great and we definitely have some ideas and recommendations as do other people that are doing some great work too but I always go back to really culturally relevant, finding out the stories of your, your own kids in your classroom and really having kids dig into their own family histories and learning more uh, about their own, I think then helps you develop other appreciation for when you learn about other Native, uh, other cultures and other Native cultures. So it's just a great um, opportunity, but he goes into depth in that book, like looking at new ways to think about, you know, it is time. And it is the colors and the smells and everything. So it just seems like such an engaging way to approach food. Oh my gosh. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my gosh. I know that those are, that's just sort of the list that like we have available through like our library system. This is where like I have to put a plug in for like putting in holds and going and getting them from the library. Um, but what other books would you recommend too? Like those are the sort of the ones that I've gotten started with, but is there anything that you would recommend specifically? Just like from the top of my head. I mean, I think, you know, that book, Braiding Sweetgrass. <sighs> Yeah. Oh, I, my goodness. I, yes. I heard the, I heard, you know, an interview with her and it just hit so close to home and was just, but also just so aspirational, like inspirational. And, and, um, she's just done some amazing work. And so that book feels like it, um, is a must read. And for those of us who are interested in deepening our relationship with, um, the plant people or plant life. I sort of love, love plants. And so I think that that one would be really good to recommend. It's hard to unlearn stuff. 
It is, you know, and that's, that's a part of it too, right? Like this, there, there is, uh, recently I feel like there, there's been, um, a lot of discussion around like grace, like calling people in rather than out. And I think that that's really a critical part of this whole process. Like one of the things that I, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna gush about Molly of Denali because, oh Love my that. goodness. Love oh. that show. I was at this, uh, I was at this conference. I think it was in 2018 because it was before it premiered like at large. It was like this new Americans media thing, like Namley in downtown DC. And they showed a clip of it and they showed a clip from the episode grandpa's drum. And like, I felt terrible because I was in a room with a bunch of other professionals, just boom, like a bunch of tears. (laughs) I had the same when I saw it. Yeah. I was crying. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's so special. Like it's so special. Oh my goodness. And it it just felt like we'd come so far. Yes. But I was just thinking like, here I am sitting with my kids who are now a couple generations removed from boarding school. Mm -hmm. And there's a show that tells the story in a really sensitive and delicate, um, and thoughtful way. And, um, but that's, you know, accurate and, you know, doesn't sugar, but you know, it's just, it just hit the right tone. I think they just, it was brilliant. And it just, it made me realize when I was sitting with my kids, like how far, like that we've come and, you know, and, and I mean, we still have a long way to go in terms of representation and things, but it just was exciting because I thought back to my grandma who was actually the, you know, and then for those generations behind her, those, you know, that actually experienced boarding schools, nothing like that was ever, you know, um, there for them, for those kids to heal, you know? And so Mm -hmm. it's important to tell those stories and, um, for all the generations that have hurt there. Yes. Just from even hearing our family's stories, you know, there's, you can see the pain in your families, you know, you know, that it was difficult and very, and tragic, frankly. So mm-hmm. Ollie from Denali is such a great, such a great show. Oh, I know. Yeah. This is, this is something where like, you know, I speak, speaking from like a little bit of experience, um, but when, when I was back in Michigan, I worked at the state history center. Um, you know, one of the really interesting things to me was that part of part of like the historic preservation stuff that um, a lot of nations would do in Michigan would be to preserve the uh, Indian boarding schools near them. And so there, there were a couple, like, I, I can't even remember the name of all of them, but there was like Holy Cross. There's like, and they're dotted around Michigan. Right. So this was all, this always struck me as really interesting because I couldn't quite figure out why they wouldn't just want to burn the building to the ground. I mean, but it occurred to me later that preserving that history and being able to tell that story was so important because we, you know, we, we have, we, we, we have photographs, right? We have pictures, we, we have accounts, but the, another important piece of it is being able to go to this place and like feel what happened like to, to walk through there and experience it for yourself. And I, I didn't realize that until much later, but like, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, like keep them standing because like we, we have to, we have to be able to like communicate that in our own terms. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
um, when the, if they're gone, it's almost like hard to remember that history. Like it's almost like erasing that, that history. And we kind of have to deal with that pain in order to get moved past it. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, places like Carlisle, they had propaganda photographers. So gobs and gobs of pictures um, for a specific reason, you know, um, to quote, show civilization of Indians, but other smaller schools like Seneca Indian school where my grandma went and others, they don't have, they don't, there's not a lot of pictures. Mm-mm. No. Um, and so it's almost easy to forget they existed, you know, if, if we don't have some of those places to go back to and learn about. Yes. Oh my goodness. And I don't know, th- this is one of those things where like, you know, for me, this kind of ties into quarantine because being able to visit places is so important as a part of learning about them, mm-hmm. you know, so like it, it just sort of reinforces that to me. So th- this is, this is my own experience, but, um, you know, I, I started working for the system really recently. Like I, I got hired on, uh, in 2017 and back then, you know, I, I was curious to see sort of like what, uh, what books were available about like history about indigenous kids like and I did have to take a look at that Thanksgiving stuff too because I was curious yeah. and I, I have to say in the past three years alone the difference is staggering in the amount that's available and it's wonderful oh my that's gosh great. there's even this new imprint out by Harper Collins called Heart Drum and so this is like this huge avenue for so many new authors because it specifically focuses on indigenous authors and indigenous stories. That's, it was really, it's just magical. Like for lack of a better word, I love being able to hear about that and to promote that. So one of the things that I included in my book list is another one by Julie Flett, who has, uh, yeah, right. Oh, I love her. And I love her work. I love her like standalone books, but I love her illustrations. And I always get really excited every time I see them anywhere else. Um, They're beautiful. Oh, I know. I know the, the one that I included for the list, like this first list that I made was wild berries because I loved like the, the words together and like, it's just, it's a very, it's a very lovely story that, you know, I think it communicates sort of like that, that quiet, like how, how important it is and how much it can like sort of to, to use sort of a newer teacher term, maybe it, it like fills your bucket right? To spend time with a loved one in that way, in like a quiet setting, doing something that ties you together. Some of the other ones that I've loved, of course, are My Heart Fills with Happiness. Um, You Hold Me Up. I love, love, love these books. Like, they're not specifically related to food, but like, just in terms of telling those indigenous stories, I, mm, it's hard to beat those for me. Yeah, those are great recommendations. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm so looking forward to seeing what else comes out too. Like th- those are those are the ones for younger children who are typically the group that I work with. But um I've also seen some really really wonderful stuff for some teenagers. And one of the books, one of the this is actually a graphic novel series that I would highly recommend. Um but it's Moonshot. I don't remember the editor's name, but there's a lot of contributors. Um, some of my absolute favorite artists are a part of it um, in writing and in like illustrations. But man, man, oh man, I love that book because it tells stories about the past 
present and future. And like, they're in these really beautiful, like amazing, <laughs> like renditions of these different stories. Like, you know, you, you have, this is going to sound really silly, but like you have Indians in space. Like there's, there's a lot of these really awesome, like beautiful stories from an indigenous perspective. Is that what they call indigenous futurisms or something? Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. I'll check that. I'll check Moonshot out. That's great. There's Mm. some um, graphic novelists and I really like, um, last year we had, we show you Alvitre. Yes. Phenomenal at a teacher workshop, actually rethinking Thanksgiving workshop. Um, so she came as well as Tracy Sorrell who did the, um, we are grateful. Oh yeah. Nice book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that one in Cherokee language and in English and it's really nice. Oh, I know. I love those too. Okay. Sorry. I know that we're almost out of time. I just, uh, I love geeking out about books. <laughs> then one last thing, because I have to ask this being that, you know, Mitsutam Cafe at Smithsonian is honest to goodness, one of my favorite places in the entire district. <laughs> Do you have a favorite food there? Yes. So my favorite, and I know it's because I'm a product of growing up in the Pacific Northwest, but it is the salmon. Oh, salmon and and the, you know fiddleheads the fiddlehead there's fiddleheads and I just love those um so many great family memories so mm. salmon is is um my favorite there but everything's really good I love the soups mm-hmm. great clam chowder and um there and I actually love the ceviche that they have you know it's a real treat to eat there so when people come to town every once in a while I get to go and it's just it's really very good yeah oh my goodness we we have done the same thing um for members of my family who visited because it's like it's a gem and we have to show it off um my favorite thing there is the buffalo burger like nothing Mm. nothing can beat that for me it's so good but i know too that uh sometimes like there are these festivals, right? Like there, there was one uh, focusing on like Hawaii. There was a Blackfeet festival last year. Um, one of my favorite food things happened at the Lumbee days that, and my hosted, Oh my goodness. That barbecue was, Oh, I can't even, I can't even like come up with words for it, but it was so good. <laughs> oh my goodness. Lumbees have a rich food tradition. One of my best friends is Lumbee, and she just made some wonderful food one time when we stayed with her, and her grains and everything is so tasty. And a lot of hearts put into that food, you know, a lot of hearts put into that. It's delicious. Yes, absolutely. Oh, man. I My, my dearest wish is that... Um, when, you know, when, when it's safe to be like together again, uh, we can have more of like that food sharing, those food experiences at Mitsutom because that was magic. Okay. But I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know that we only had sort of a limited amount of time, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming in and talking to me this morning. I really appreciate it. Yes. I, it's my pleasure, Ellie. And I, I don't want to take more of your time either, but I did want to share with you. Um, so we got into growing our own food this summer a little bit. Oh, Every, wow. We, we kind of grow different types of corn. Um, and so we'll have friends or family members send us corn and we'll try it. Like I've grown Minchipi, which is Miamia corn one year. Um, but last summer I got these seeds um, they're Cherokee from at least the 1700s. I'm sure they're earlier than that. They're pop. It's a popcorn. 
And just, um, I loved all the different colors that came out. It grew really tall and it was so nice to spend time with my kids and, um, and grow corn this summer. And we grow, we grew some pumpkins and, um, and gourds and different beans, um, and things like that. So, you know, just trying to develop these relationships with these foods has been so satisfying and really one of the salves of the pandemic summer, um, was just being able to, to have a little bit of time to, to grow these foods and grow relationships with them. So it was such a, such a highlight. And, um, and we make popcorn a lot at our house at home. My kids love popcorn and under normal circumstances, the neighborhood kids love it. Um, and so we, we tried to actually make the popcorn from, or, you know, we pop the popcorn from this popcorn and it tastes so nutty and delicious. It's just awesome. So that's one of our foods that we've now started to, to grow and, and make at home. So that's a lot of fun. Oh my gosh. That is so wonderful. Uh, it's, it's stuff like this that makes me miss Michigan. Like I, I love it here. It's wonderful, but I have a balcony and I'm so sad that it's so hard to grow my own food. That is so, yeah. oh man, that is so cool. Oh, I love popcorn too. Oh man. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, you can still do a little like herbs and stuff on your balcony or anything you can kind of squeeze in. Yeah, I'm I'm going to make a stronger effort, definitely. <laughs> too bad DC um, Public Library is too bad you didn't have a little area for growing some foods there nearby or in pots or something. Yeah, well, we I what I can say is that MLK has this and I'm sorry to brag about this because like nobody can go up there yet, but um, there is this really gorgeous um, rooftop garden that we have, which is like, um, you know, native plants to the area, but cool. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's great too. Cause like the birds have already taken to it. So eating lunch up there is really a, a, a gift, you know, it's so, it's so great, but man, oh man, would it have been so special to have like, you know, garden pots up there or something like that. Like, you know, cause again, right in downtown DC, it's a little tough to find like open land, but I think we'll, we'll have to see. Cause I think that we can make something happen up there. It's, it's such a beautiful space already. And that's great. And so neat what you're talking about the native plants. And when we bring those native plants back, we bring back the insects that feed the birds and, you know, really help add energy to those food systems again. Yes. So that's important. Yeah, yes. that's great. Oh my goodness. Oh, yes. Thank you once again to Renee Goki from the National Museum of the American Indian for speaking with me today. It was really, really a special conversation. And I'm really so glad that we got the chance to do this. So... Right here is where I'm going to tell you to go and check out the National Museum of the American Indians Native Knowledge 360 project. The URL for that, accessible online, is going to be AmericanIndian.si.edu backslash NK360. If you're curious and if you want to learn more, definitely check them out. You just listened to DC Public Library Presents on DC Public Library Podcast, recorded from the Labs Recording Studio in the historic, modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, DC. Thank you once again for listening. My name is Ali Bama P. See you later. You just tuned into DC Public Library Podcast. Listen and subscribe at dcplpodcast.simplecast.com or wherever podcasts are available. Send us your comments at DCPL on Twitter 
or follow us at DC Public Library on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening.